Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. Nerdapalooza, the world's largest nerd music festival, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other fine Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Hey everybody, this is Charlie from Fangamer. I'm Ryan, also known as Rofish from Fangamer. My name is Reed Young, and you're listening to Nerdy Show! <laughs> now, say fuzzy pickles. <laughs> Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap. I'm Jermaine. I'm John Laval. Our Nerdy Show live coordinator. And on Skype. Hey, I'm Jessica. And I'm Colin. And today, we're going to talk about Kickstarter. We're also, in this episode, going to be interviewing Martin Wagner, a filmmaker who is promoting his project on Kickstarter, Bloody Work, a historical serial killer documentary. And uh, Jessica, who's one of our SciTech correspondents, she's going to talk about the tech side of Kickstarter. And in this episode, we're going to feature some clips from a Kickstarter panel, which Brian of Flame On hosted at HeroesCon in Charlotte, North Carolina. What is Kickstarter? Well, you probably know what Kickstarter is. It's essentially the website that defined the crowdfunding revolution that's been going on for the last few years. It started in 2009 and has raised millions and millions of dollars for various creative endeavors. Some that uh, come to fruition and some that don't. We're going to be talking about the pros and cons of Kickstarter and many of the nerdy projects that have been funded there. You know, over the years at Nerdy Show, we've talked about a lot of projects that have been Kickstarted. In fact, one of our own Nerdy Show people actually had a very prominent Kickstarter, uh, Hex's novel, Alan. Unfortunately, he's, <laughs> he's not here to talk with us about it, but you can certainly ask him or you can even ask Alan. Alan, who is an AI. Yes, an artificial intelligence. Right, and there's a whole book about him. Yeah, that that, that was a, that was what was fun. And that was the, a pretty the, good the novel, though, Alan. He had some good rewards. Like, um, I had backed it, and one of my rewards I get to be I get to voice my own character. Like, I had my, I had my own character, and yeah. I get to voice that character on the podcast. Yeah, the podcast, which uh, only one episode's out so far, but it is forthcoming. Hex has had a lot of big life shakeups that have uh, interrupted that schedule, but it's on the books, and uh, much of the following episodes have been recorded. It's actually all, all a matter of uh, coordinating some other stuff, including coordinating with other voice actors. Right. That's so. going to be pretty exciting. Speaking of projects, should we, uh, we should get back to the basic of what Kickstarter is. Sure. It's a crowdsourced, crowdsourced funding, which right. means if you can't get a traditional investor, like an angel investor or somebody who uh, you owe money to <laughs> uh, from the profit, right. you promise them a, it's basically like either a pre-sale of the product, a special edition of the product. You can be involved in the product in some way. Like some films that have done a Kickstarter have offered uh, an executive producer credit or uh, a cameo. Yeah, the, pre, like the pre-sale quality of it is actually one of the most accessible things because there's been lots of CDs that needed um, either 
money to finish the uh, recording process or to actually press physical copies. And really, it acts as a pre-order service where the money goes directly to the production with no middleman, which is really cool. And a lot of albums that wouldn't have happened otherwise have happened that way. Well, there's also like the- uh, Anna Managuchi's latest album. Yeah, that which is just got funded on Sunday. That's correct. Yeah, yeah and that that's been huge. And those guys, man, uh, they have been blowing up. Like, uh, you know, I, I work for a, a music website, and so I get a lot of press releases. And Anna Managuchi has actually been showing up in these press releases, where wherein normally I would be getting emails from people promoting, you know, major acts like uh, Animal Collective or. Or something. It's like Anna Managuchi. I'm like, well, well, uh, my, you guys are doing good. Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty amazing. And and there's a huge range of caliber too. You know, you have people who are just starting out that have maybe never had a project before. You know, this is their first time. They're artists or somebody who's never really had funding. You know, they're working with zero budget. Yeah. And people who blew up all the way, like you have Penny Arcade, for instance, who wanted to replace their ad revenue. Um, to get rid of their ads. Yeah, that was a bring in. That was a weird thing. That was, I mean, that was actually something of a controversy. It was an extreme controversy because it's like, why do you need this money? And you know, how many employees do you have? I think they're asking for like a million dollars, right? You mean like Veronica Mars? Right, Veronica Mars. There's a, there's another one that's on that big, on that big scale, right? Yeah, that one's made like I want to say two million within like 24, 48 hours. Yeah, it and didn't, and didn't Zach Braff do something similar too? Yeah, was, right. Yeah, it, I think it failed though, didn't it? It's I don't know. It's got to still be ongoing. I think it was the, pretty, pretty the, recent. The uh, Veronica Mars one, which is a project by Rob Thomas, not of Matchbox Twenty of fame, <laughs> but uh, some guy from Austin, Texas, and he has five point seven million dollars of the two million dollar goal. So, and that was in a month. Now, granted, if he had gone to traditional uh, investors, they, he probably would never would have seen that money. Right. The other thing, though, that's kind of weird about this to me is. So great. Now some people have some DVDs and everybody feels really warm and squishy about it. To me, this takes away attention from projects that maybe needed that. Just an update on that. Zach Braff's follow-up film uh, is overfunded. He got $3 million out of the $2 million he was looking for. Yeah. I well, mean, you know, ideally, uh, the, the system of Kickstarter, one of the things that makes it work is the idea that you can do even better than the bare minimum if you get your funding. Ideally, you would set a low goal and have stretch goals people would want to keep contributing towards. So I, you know, I don't know what what Zach Braff's offering for this film, but must be good enough. Yeah, it's got to be. And 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 that's the other difference we should mention too about Kickstarter is if it does not fund completely, they get no money and nobody's card gets charged. Unlike yeah. unlike stuff like Indiegogo, where if it's like, oh, you got ten bucks out of the, like the hundred thousand you asked for, now you can't do the project, but you get the ten bucks anyway. Yeah, you can get straight up ripped off. So no problems. Yeah, with Indiegogo, if you reach the goal, they take 7%. If you don't reach the goal, they take 12%. But that's still, I mean, that could still be an excessive amount of money. Right. And I guess now, you what can... is the policy with, with Indiegogo, though? I mean, because with Kickstarter, you know, funded or not funded, that's, that's black and white. But with Indiegogo, if it doesn't get funded and they still take your money, that's a gray area, right? So do you still have to deliver on those promises or do people still expect their product? Or think... is it just kind of like, well, huge finger. Peace out. I think it's I think a lot of it is just like I'm contributing to an artist or an entrepreneur that I believe in. And even if this money doesn't exactly fund 100 percent the project, it will still help that person in their endeavors. So I think that that's that's the idea with Indiegogo is like, oh, I really dig this band. Oh, shit. We couldn't make it to, you know, fund their album. But 
hopefully they'll be able to make some kick-ass music with this with this money that we gave them because I still enjoy this band. There's a lot of trust there, so you have to make sure you place it well. Yeah, big honor yeah. system in there. Speaking of trust, you want to hear a story about Indiegogo campaign I supported? Oh, so the, here's uh, the ultimate worst-case scenario. So here's yes. a funny story. Jermaine uh, is an accessory. Go ahead, Jermaine. I put money towards an Indiegogo campaign towards this artist's third album, and I liked, I enjoyed his first two albums. I'm not going to put his name out there. Privacy reasons, obviously. He overfunded. He got the money. Then a month later, he was arrested for soliciting someone to kill his wife. And they believe that this yeah, they believe that this money was used, right? Yes. Indiegogo so, funded this guy's hit on his so, wife. So here's my question. Possibly. Right? Possibly. Here's my question. And, and Jermaine contributed to it. I learned most of what I know about the law from the movie The Dark Knight. Do you remember? Do you remember that like how like they were able to bring in all those mob guys because they pulled their money together? It was called. It was Rico. You ever heard of this? Right. So uh-huh. so if you work for John Gotti and you make a crap load of money based on or or you contributed money to his operation, he goes down for murder. They can get you for accessory to murder or also for murder because that and it, if it's involved with that money, right? So my question is: Is there an indictment somewhere? with Jermaine's name on it. <laughs> That's the question. He's making some faces right now. <laughs> Jermaine's, Jermaine's actually Googling lawyers right now. Well, that's attorneys. a lot of people LAPD is going to have to arrest. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of people, but have you seen LAPD? I mean, they have a military, basically. They have drones, dude. You better, you better go grab some, uh, some flammables and head to a cabin somewhere. That's obviously, the murder thing's an extreme case, right? But there's no accountant. So... Um, coming from a, I come from a, a film background. I'm a producer, and in that, you know, if I spend money on something, you know, if I have a budget, um, I have to account for the money that the investor gave me, and then it goes, you know, there's a books for that. Kickstarter doesn't require this, so you know, maybe it's like, oh, I, you know, oh, I need a uh, hundred thousand dollars to make my art project, and then I need, you know, anything over that is totally going to go to this art project. And then meanwhile, he's ordering a yacht on the internet because it just made $3 million. So, right. You know, I mean, and he's within his right to do so. Right. There's no, probably, there's no yeah. accountability. Yeah, yeah. Zero accountability. But at the same time, but hey, it's better than any go, go. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean the fact that, I mean, at least if he doesn't make the money, you can't just take what he's got and leave. And to our knowledge, it hasn't been used uh, to commit any murders. So, mm. I mean, that's a thing. Yeah. That we know uh, of. So as far as as far as Kickstarter goes, um, there's been so many myriad projects that um, are nerd centric. Uh, Statue of RoboCop in Detroit. Oh my goodness, that was one of my first. Yeah, that was one of my first backs. Yeah, and I got I and I got that my was stuff like in that. one of the first. I think that was like one of the first things that put Kickstarter on. Like that brought me into the. Oh, what's this site? Oh, oh, Kickstarter. That's that's cool. And then that was that's what brought me into Kickstarter was this RoboCop statue thing. Yeah. And it totally sold. I mean, it's, it's, they sold it really well too. You know, like, you know, how come they have, uh, they have a statue of, uh, of Rocky, you know, there's a stat, you know, every city that has like a movie and they've, they've already built statues to these famous film characters. Well, where the hell's our Robocop? Yeah. And there's, um, there's a picture that showed up recently online of, uh, some kind of test mold or something of the statue. Oh, yeah, it looks yeah. amazing. So I have an idea to make these Kickstarters crowdsourcing uh more accountable do it we need to get like kickstarter mafia yeah see told you rico he's already talking about mafia (laughs) we go to their doors yep look here motherfucker where's the perk (laughs) (laughs) and now let's uh let's play a theme 
for uh, Jermaine's Kickstarter enforcers, uh, something to play when they slide open the van door. It's uh, a Dr. Octorox 8-bit rendition of the A-Team theme. So uh, what what Kickstarter projects have we all funded that, uh, you know, pros and cons? Uh, I funded some awesome albums, Cuckoo Kangaroo's uh, album about, uh, about animals, um, David Liebehart, the uh, crazy fella from Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job. He did a punk rock album that was amazing. Fun of the album, got a copy of that. Of course, we not too very long ago inter- interviewed uh, Jeremy Soule, who's a Kickstarter, he's a, the composer for Skyrim and... Uh, Secret of Evermore, a bunch of like one of the greatest game composers of all time. He's privately funding a symphony that he's recording. Uh, one of his only, uh, you know, something he couldn't get produced commercially is being funded via Kickstarter. Awesome web series like Fallout Nuka Break. Phil Tippett, one of the guys who worked on Return of the Jedi and uh, Empire Strikes Back, is producing a full length uh, stop motion film called Mad God. Guy behind Repo Man's doing a sci-fi called Bill the Galactic Hero. It's it's also enabled people who's who've uh, cult heroes who've faded into obscurity to support new projects such as um Ralph Bakshi, the famous animator who is behind the animated version of Fritz the Cat and films like um American Pop and uh, the Tolkien adaptations. And Fire and Ice, he's uh, producing his first new film in, in decades called Last Days of Coney Island. I've, I've had really positive experiences with uh, everything that I've supported on Kickstarter so far. And I know that's not a universal thing, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I have re- in, in time received all my awards collectively, even if it's taken longer than, you know, longer than expected. Uh, it took me a long time to get my glow-in-the-dark uh, Alice Cooper cover vinyl uh, recorded via wax cylinder, but uh, eventually it came, so... Uh, no complaints here, but you know, not everybody's that lucky. I yeah, I mean, would you would you say that a lot of people do Kickstarter because of the rewards? Uh, I mean, like it seems like the main appeal is like, oh shit, I gotta get on this because this thing sounds awesome, and I gotta hop on it while it's cheaper, or I'll be able to access you know uh, a book every month or something like that. I th- I think that it's possible. It, it I think it also has a lot to do with people feeling like they made it happen. I think there's that that mm-hmm. gratification when it backs, along with the oh crap they just took the money out of my account. <laughs> you, you do get to be part of something, yeah. but it also depends on whether or not the people who are running the project help you feel like you're part of something. 
Yeah, I think that's yeah. it's that's up to the Kickstarter. I've backed numerous amounts. Should I list them? There's Make an Album with Random Encounter. You can hear them on nerdy.fm. Plug. Um, <laughs> yeah, n- Nerdy FM, our uh, our 24-7 streaming nerd music radio station. Uh, uh, it's if it's been a while since we've mentioned it on the show, but yeah. if you're not if you're not hip to it, you should absolutely check it out. Uh, it's all kinds of nerd centric music, twenty four hours a day at nerdy dot fm. Uh, end of plug, but you know it's something. Uh, it's completely awesome. We think you should check it out. The there was replacing the n word with robot and Huck Finn. That was pretty amazing. They yeah. also did one where you could get uh, one copy of the book, and then they would donate another copy to a public library. Yeah. So there's some public library somewhere with like a whole shelf of Huck Finn where and where Jim is uh, robot Jim. There was Terminus, which I wasn't really happy with, but we'll talk about that later. Hickeys, which are uh, replacement uh, I, I, for your... I know what hickeys are, John. Okay. Replacement for your shoestrings. No, wait, no, what? They're replacement for your shoestrings uh, on your shoes. <laughs> so they're clips. They're like little clips, like Velcro, but instead of Velcro, they, they actually clip like a little eyelet that goes through your plug. Huh. I did actually back Penny Arcade sells out because I was curious to see if I would get any of my stuff, which I did. So I'm pretty amazed by that. Alan, which was our buyer on John X Carter. Uh, there's a lot, dude. Uh, there's I, yeah, Barkley 2, Barkley Shut Up oh. and Jam Gaiden. Oh, yeah. Two. Yeah. We've got a we got a microsode we need to do about the first game. Mario uh, Warfare. I haven't played it yet, but, Mario, uh, but you're a fan. Mario Warfare. Mario Warfare. Yeah. That's going to be also in an upcoming. Hopefully. Yeah. Episode. We we, we, uh, we got plans to talk with the creators of that series. I backed Bloody Work twice. Yes, we'll be talking uh, Martin Wagner's bloody work. We'll we'll get into that the story of another uh, local how project get funded. Another local project, the 2014 Horsing Around Calendar. It's a calendar of people in horse masks. <laughs> it was, and I I originally did it because I thought Jermaine was in it. Yeah, yeah my yeah. bad. And You're then, not in it. No, right. Happened. And now I feel like a jerk if I pull my backing. But Jermaine's famous for. Um, I mean. I guess lots of people do it on the internet, but I'm going to say Jermaine was there first. Yeah, he uh, was at Nerdapalooza. Wearing a hyper-realistic horse mask in public. and Unicorn, unicorn mask. Unicorn. Yeah. Don't, be, don't be racist. <laughs> That's right. He's the Jermaine-icorn. Jermaine-icorn. Making, making people feel good. Real good. Uh, Real good. Well, I mainly actually supported hardware projects on Kickstarter, only one of which I've actually received so far, and that was is a Kickstarter called Kinetic Creatures. So I saw them at Maker Faire a couple years ago, and it's... Um, a robot rhino made out of cardboard, which is pretty cool. Whoa. Yeah. So they laser cut all the cardboard and you put it together and then you have your own little walking rhino or they had a giraffe or something else too. Pretty cool. Or maybe I got the giraffe. I don't remember, but I haven't had time to put it together. So that's also the downside of Kickstarter. You can (laughs) back something and be like, this is going to be awesome. And then not have any time for it when it actually shows up. And I also just backed the 3d doodler, which is the world's first 3d printed pen. So it's a 3d printer that's a that's a pen. So I'm excited to get that in January next year. I think so. Yeah. There's a lot of um, lead time on the tech Kickstarters. Usually it's, it's definitely enough to get nervous about. Yeah. But it's interesting because what I find, you know, psychologically is that I, I still want to contribute. Like, it's so like, wow, this is really cool. I might not get it for a year, but eh, whatever. I mean, so it's, it's really interesting that that delayed gratification is totally fine and with hardware too usually you want to do like a hands-on demo and make sure that it actually works but from this you can only really look at the video and say well theoretically that sounds awesome but it might totally suck but <laughs> fingers crossed uh, our other side tech correspondent john he actually bought a laser cutter via kickstarter which he and Kristen use in their glass making and other stuff business illuminated lion which we'll link to on this episode's page that was kind of neat it was a small laser company who were working on a new design model for uh for laser cutters and well you could you could invest and get it much cheaper than you could get it otherwise and if you invested enough you could get ridiculous on i think they they did like some kind of 
custom paint jobs and other shit if you got really crazy. But PrinterBot is actually close to to where I'm at in California, and they're probably one of the most successful 3D printer Kickstarters who actually met all of their their backers within, I think, like a month of when they said they were. So it was pretty, pretty incredible. That's amazing. And still successful business today. He has like five different models. Did they did they have kind of like a, a working prototype first before they did their Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah. So his thing was he wanted to to get it really cheap and you know sort of smaller than other three D printer. Oh, that's cool. Um, models. So, so you know, he and he keeps getting it. smaller. He has one that folds up into a backpack for students now. It's really Whoa. really awesome. So they can three D print their homework. Right. That's pretty rad. How about you, Colin? I haven't backed a ton of things on on Kickstarter. The only things that I've I've backed are Alan. I've also backed uh, Singularity and Co. Where we had we had an episode where we interviewed the, yeah um, um, nerdy the show folks book behind Singularity and Co. That that's that's really uh, a cool thing. It's a library of digital books, constantly growing, forever and ever and ever of uh, science fiction novels that would be lost to time otherwise. Yeah, I also uh, recently backed a Kickstarter um, called Tiny Games, which is basically a it's an app on your on your iPhone wherever you are in the world. Um, you can say how many people you have, and if you have access to a certain number of things, there's a game that you can play um, with those people. And that sounded really awesome and fun, so I backed them, and they were able to make it, which was great. I did. That's really cool. We, we talked about uh, Tiny Games, but I wasn't following them. That's that's really cool. They succeeded. Yes, they did make it. They actually succeeded. They exceeded their goal, actually. So no, they did. Re- they did very well, and they were very excited that that happened. Um, it, it, it think the cool thing about Kickstarter is it does feel like you get a window into these people's into their lives in a way that they are pleading with the world in order to make this cool idea that they have happen. And uh, it's a way for these independent companies or artists to be able to uh, reach the masses um, without having connections to the movers and shakers of the world and kind of really make their dreams come to reality in a way in which. Uh, otherwise wouldn't be possible without websites like Kickstarter. So it's pretty cool to see to see these artists and um, companies get so excited about people finding what they're doing fun yeah. and worthy yeah. enough to be paying them. Yeah, I've got it. I really enjoy, you know, the updates throughout the process. You know, right. if you back early and then all of a sudden you get this like, oh, my God, we're, you know, 120 percent funded and you just read how excited they are. Or sometimes people put out videos and I think that's really cool, too. Um, so my friends, for example, they just did a um, a Kickstarter so that they could fund uh, live screenings of their um, film school writer showcase through FSU. And so as one of the rewards, they write personalized songs for everyone. So throughout oh. the process, you would get these like songs of um, my friend Matt singing, you know, thanks so much for donating. You're, you know, really awesome. I can't do it justice, but I felt that it was really cool and it really showed how enthusiastic they were about about the project. Yeah, th- it does seem like at times, specifically folks who aren't necessarily expecting their goals to be reached, like they don't understand, they don't quite, sometimes things just take off and a ton of people back something and the rewards that they set are way like impossible to reach like they like some of the some of the the goals that people are making in the reward perks are just like there's no way that you're going to be able to make it in that time or with this amount of people or that kind of stuff it's just like there is an art and a strategy to it for sure yes (laughs) how about about germanicorn funded quite a few number of things like i funded a number of student films my friends have directed in the past 
I also funded Alan, of course, the Mindless Self-Indulgence latest album and Anima Naguchi's album as well. I funded a food truck last year and mm. they were successful. Had a huge accident with the truck, so no perks were given. Though they've like oh. they were able to restart their business and have said nothing to their Kickstarter supporters. Yeah, that's mm. a that's an interesting situation. I I know about this situation and they uh they they built this really decorative food truck and it toppled over on a uh, an off ramp on a turnpike. Yep. Yeah. Oh god. And then and, but they're since they've since rebuilt and they're very successful. But Jermaine hasn't heard jack shit from them. Yeah. And that's the first job for the Kickstarter enforcers. I also <laughs> the uh, guys behind um, Axe Cop had yeah. started a Kickstarter on a comic book they created called Jesus in the Name of the Gun. It's a story about Jesus going back in time to destroy like world leaders like Hitler. Goes back to destroy Stalin, Vlad the Impaler, and so on. But is this the same kid co-writing? No, it's oh. just yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man, because he's like what? It's probably twelve. It would have been interesting if he was co-writing. Yeah, I mean, he's like probably like twelve now or thirteen, right? Fourteen. Got to be. But yeah, they wanted to do a web series, didn't make it. So well, they're on they're on Fox ADHD now. They got their own cartoon. Nice. Greenlit by Fox. I didn't realize that. That's very yeah. cool. Yep. I mean, I'm pretty sure because I thought I saw X Cop and their little promo thing. <laughs> But I mean, that's pretty amazing. And that's another story of pre Kickstarter uh, kind of like crowdfunding, right? Because they were taking money for their web series or whatever for their web comic. Mm. You know, that's what it used to be, right? It used to be a little PayPal donation button. And now it's now it's Kickstarter. Everybody kickstarts. Yeah. And though it's not a Kickstarter, you all forgot the Mark with a C popular Ooh. music album. Well, I, he's yeah. done several projects. Mark's uh, Mark funded. But he uh, loves Indiegogo, right? Is it Indiegogo he used? Yeah. Because he wants to run with the money. No, he's not like that. <laughs> I actually, and actually, not only did I get everything from Mark, I got it in a timely fashion. Um, I backed him twice because he was like just shy of his goal. So then I backed him again and I got like double perks. I got double rewards, even though I was just basically re-upping my thing. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. He, he's both funded a new album and then he also um, did uh, one to get one of his older albums pressed on vinyl. So it's a, you know, it's an, it's a neat option that uh, creative people have to get projects done. It just as long as you can pull through on it, and we'll be talking about the downside of things uh, shortly. So the, the X Cop thing, actually, it's a, it is going to be a TV series. Starts July twenty seventh. Cool. That's really, that's it's, awesome. It's animated by Ego Raptor. If you're familiar with his work. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's pretty cool. That when you see something like that that started as a little baby project, you know, it's that same hype as as kind of a Kickstarter thing. Yeah. And it, it blows up like that. That's pretty amazing. The last thing I want to mention is a board game expansion pack I recently yeah. funded called Sentinels of the Multiverse. I funded them last September. They made their they made their goal and they made all their stretch goals. So I got my expansion pack like two months ago, and I'm expecting another one this October. So, oh, well, that's pretty rad. See, I like when stuff backs like that, and you get your perks, and you're super happy. And they've been like continually updating us. Hey, here guys, here what's going on? We're doing this and this, send us pictures and all that. And now we're gonna play a selection of clips. From the Kickstarter panel at this year's Heroes Con. It was moderated by Brian of Flame On and features the input of successful comics related Kickstarters Ryan Brown, Greg Baldwin, Jeremy Hahn, and Ben Templesmith. I am Brian Pittard. I am from the Flame On Show and uh, Nerdy Show Network. So let's uh, introduce people. Uh, Mr. Ryan Brown here of God Hates Astronauts and many other awesome things. Uh, we have Greg Baldwin from Creature Box. We have the illustrious Mr. Ben Templesmith. And joining us... I'm Jeremy Hahn. I was part of the Bad Karma Kickstarter project. Uh, let's talk about each of the Kickstarter projects, because I don't know if everyone's familiar with all your stuff. Time is a giant odd anthology. 
uh, for dark art. This, we're going to do it semi-annually or biannually. Each one will have a theme sort of thing. We do take open submissions, but we also curate it a bit and get some of the top people in the world, hopefully, into it. We, we did last time, so we're trying to do a new one very shortly. Uh, and then we did a second Kickstarter, which was last. We, we want to do a, a small hardcover art book of comic book of all the, the sins. So me and Steve Niles did one the first time since we did 30 days. It went okay. We, we were literally expecting the copies as soon as I get back from Heroes Con. So that's the second book. And that's a more of a traditional comic book, but still not traditional. Bad Karma is a 200-page hardcover original graphic novel that we did. The Bad Karma group is uh, myself, Alex Grecian, who's a novelist and comics writer, B. Claymore, another uh, comics writer. It's mostly a writing collective is what we kind of started out as. We each wrote an individual full-length comic size story, 22 pages, and then brought an artist in to draw that. And then as Bad Karma, the four of us, writer's room style, wrote a story together, and then I drew that one. Dave and I started Creature Box about six years ago, and almost every year we did an Ashcan, just a little eight and a half by five and a half color sketchbook. Because they're little and they were just kind of chock full of junk, people picked them up, but they're, they're pamphlets, so they're, they got lost, and we started getting a little bit of a following. People wanted to see them bigger, and that's what sort of pushed the book. So we went back and we took four years' worth of work. We went through and we kind of like did the remastering, kind of like taking out the the crap that you're super embarrassed about that you did four years ago, updated it and scaled it up. And then we added another year's content to it. So it was exclusive. So anybody who already had some of the previous little sketchbooks wouldn't feel jaded about like trying to support this type of thing. Just our fun explorations of characters and monsters and spacemen, which is kind of our gig. I did two Kickstarters. My first one was kind of a test run. It was for a book I did called Blast Furnace Recreational Thief. Uh, and as a book that I did as a fun art exercise, I did uh, a comic that was, I drew a page a day, and I spent an hour exactly on each page, and I did it for six months, and I did no pre-planning or pre-writing, and I intentionally would uh, not think ahead in the story. And so that was Blast Furnace, and I did what, you know, what they did, and I had little zines and stuff of the issues that I'd have at shows, and I decided I wanted to put together a softcover collection and I asked for 2000 which covered my printing and shipping, and I made almost $9,000. But I screwed up a ton on that Kickstarter, and I'm super happy that I did it because I was you know, a soft cover, much smaller. So I'm really happy that I did that, and I learned about uh, doing Kickstarter. And so then I did a Kickstarter earlier this year for my book called God Hates Astronauts, which is a book that I've been self-publishing for about six years and just single issues and basically losing money on them. And then I started doing it as a webcomic. And doing it as a webcomic is what started giving me a, like an internet following versus the self-publishing. All that did was lose me money. Uh, so the webcomic helped me a lot to get exposure. And then the webcomic a lot, helped me a lot to have an online presence so that when I launched my Kickstarter for the collected edition, people were ready for it. I didn't just want to repackage all the, the issues, so I wrote 18 origin stories for my characters that were these two-page stories, and I, I found 18 different artists to draw them. And so I turned into this fun anthology collaboration thing. I'd like to, I think the biggest issue I've heard a lot of people talk about are shipping and fulfillment issues. Because this is something as a supporter you don't think about. You think, oh, it's magic. It's like Amazon. I order it and it comes in the mail however long after it's done. But actually... These gentlemen up here are the ones, usually, and they're, they're helpers, fulfilling your orders and acting like Amazon. With the monster volume that Creature Box did, we did, we did much better than we had anticipated. Our anticipation 
was between five and 800 books that we were going to sell. And when we talked to our printer initially, we had a really tough time figuring out what that meant when it showed up. When you're talking about five or 800 books, you can't really imagine what five to 800 books looks like packed up. When we got up to 2,700 books, the picture that was given to us by our printer was imagine a Mack truck pulling up and when they roll up the door, everything inside is yours. Where are you going to keep it? So we had to learn about warehousing, which most of us I don't think know anything about because we learned to art school. We had to learn about insurance, also not taught in art school. And then we had to learn about packaging and we had to get FedEx reps, get into systems where we got discounts because the rates are insane. And then we actually had to go into the warehouse every morning when I have a day job. So I was going in for two hours every morning before work and after work, taping, putting these in the mail and did that 3,400 times. So it's kind of one of those undertakings that I literally had no idea was going to happen to us, and probably for the best, because had I known it ahead of time, I wouldn't have done it. If you don't know what's coming, you know, it's a nightmare to kind of get it started. I would say that you want to do your Kickstarter to get your book made, like that's the whole idea. But as it starts becoming more and more successful, if it is successful, it's a weird thing. The more, the more you sell, the more costs you have, and the more time that you're going to have to spend out of your life working on fulfilling these books. I know some people do their Kickstarters and there's actually fulfillment services that you can have your shipments sent to and then say for like a dollar per package upcharge, they will fulfill all your orders for you. Like I know I draw comics did theirs that way. I think if I were to do it differently, I wouldn't have made mine so much that I had to be involved in almost every single package based on, you know, signing, doing drawings. As many of my friends that I could hire, I hired to come and we had, you know, big pizza and beer parties where there was like assembly lining with like seven or eight people just all doing their jobs to put it all together. It was the hardest thing that I've ever done, but it's not something I can ever complain about because it's also the best thing I've ever done. And people always ask me if I do it again. And right now I'd say no, <laughs> but ask me in six months and I'll probably say yes. When you put that number down, if you get it, you have to fulfill it. That's your moral obligation. There's no like legal obligation. I'm sure at some point there'll be a class action lawsuit against someone who took in an oodles amount of dollars. But at this point, there hasn't been that. But if you say, I need $15,000, you should be able to pull off your project with the $15,000. If you need 25 and you only ask 15 because you thought maybe you would make 25 because of the psychology, you're setting yourself up for failure. And that's happened. That's happened with a lot mm -hmm. of books where people are literally still trying to fulfill. I know a guy who's taking out loans, taking money from families, trying to make these projects finish because he has that, that obligation to complete it. So don't set yourself up for that kind of failure. We asked for $15,000 and we made $175,000. That sounds amazing. $25,000 was international shipping. Just because we made more money, I had to make more product. Mm -hmm. I give you the profit margin, you, and then you divide it amongst the two guys that actually made it, take taxes out. You know, I might have been able to take my wife to dinner on a Friday night. You know, it, was, it, it really dumbs it down. That said, I made a book, like, and I got it done, and I'm really proud of it. I finished my book before I launched the Kickstarter, and that required you know, years of work, tons of money invested, by myself. When I launched my Kickstarter, I realized that I hadn't made any money personally in like four or five months because I had just spent all that time up front finishing my product because 
I saw Kickstarter as a way of having people pre-order my product. Like they pay for it ahead of time so that then I can make it. For me, I know so many people that responded to the fact that I had it, that had the book done ahead of time and said, hey, here it is. I can show you all the pages. It's done. Mine got funded in 24 hours. And so then after the first week, I actually took out a loan and paid for all the printing because it took like six weeks for me to get my books so that it would all come to me and so I could fill my awards as fast as possible. And I think people really responded well to that as well. I also felt like an obligation to a Kickstarter uh, as a viable source for self-publishing comic books that there's so many that have given it a bad name that I felt like it, it, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right and I'm going to be as prepared as possible. I mean, I started working on this Kickstarter. I worked on it for like a year ahead of time just thinking about it, researching it, talking to people. Uh, you know, you can, you can build your, um, your little Kickstarter like preview of what you're going to show everybody, and you can build that, and you don't have to launch it until you're ready to launch it, and you can share it with people and just get feedback and just kind of make it as good as you it possibly can before, before you launch. And uh, for me, like, I felt like I owed it to the people that I, I was asking to take a risk on my book because Kickstarter is entirely a trust-based economy. I could take the money and run. I could buy a boat and just flee the country with that money, like, if I wanted. Uh, I'd never get to do anything ever again, but it was important to me to say, all right, if you trust me, then I trust you, and I'm going to get it to you as soon as I can. I think one thing that's going to happen with Kickstarter, and it is happening, is that people see it as a way to make a ton of money just because they see how much money, and you're asking for this, and then you get this. So look at how rich that person is, but look at how in trouble you can get really, really fast when your stuff is successful. I just finished mine. I think my total shipping cost for the entire thing is about $20,000. But that said, I have a book, and it's entirely paid for. And so now I can go to shows, and I have a $25 hardcover, and I can sell it to people, and that's $25 that I make on that book because it got paid for entirely by pre-orders from the fans, which is an awesome thing about it. So how did you guys come up with some of your... Uh your goals or the different backing levels that that always interests me. Each project seems to have very distinct sort of backing levels that they come up with. I mean, I, how did you guys come up with yours? What you should do for all your damaged copies. And this is something that I thought of that helped me a lot is I, I, I offered a defaced edition of my book as one of my backer levels, which was a book that I basically just destroy and like, you know, write profanity and, draw like penises and all that kind of stuff over it and so all my damaged copies are like oh another damaged copy well that's gonna be used as a deface edition uh and so that was a way for me to recycle some of the stuff that wasn't saleable and then actually sell it for uh more than a normal book so uh go figure nice there's some illustrious nerds who need some props right now people who've contributed to nerdy show who've given their money of their own free will to support us so that this show and the network may survive Mauron, who said as one of Nerdy Show's bannermen, I show my fealty to Nerdy Show again this month with these $30, Fantastic Derpy Show this week, and Neuromancer Book Club. Berto Elcon earned himself a microsode and said, Y'all are still awesome. I don't know what else to say. Well, you are too, Berto. And now we'll talk about whatever you want for 15 to 30 minutes. Last week we took E3 by storm, or possibly the other way around, and we released four episodes of our daily E3 coverage. Matthew Shoemaker did us a solid and said great E3 coverage and sent us some support. And in fact, our E3 coverage isn't done. Look forward to more E3 videos this week. And we already have some out, including one on Telltale's Walking Dead and the new DC Comics Scribblenauts. 
For all of our E3 coverage, head over to nerdyshow.com E3. Now we're going to cut to a track, and when we get back, we'll be talking with Martin Wagner about his project, Bloody Work.
welcome back. And with us on the line, we have Martin Wagner, the brain behind Bloody Work, a documentary about a serial killer in Austin, Texas. Welcome to the show, Martin. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. You're in a uh, very interesting situation with Bloody Work in that right now it's successfully funded and uh, listeners will have a chance uh, as of this episode's release to get in on the last week or so of, uh, of supporting the project to get the, the stretch goals and the additional uh, perks and everything. Um, but this is actually your second time bringing Bloody Work to Kickstarter. What can you tell us about the project and, and the process? Okay, well, I guess I'll start by, of course, pitching the, the project to everyone. I just yeah. don't know what it's all about. Uh, the, the Servant Girl murders were a, a series of killings that took place in Austin in 1885. This would have been three years before Jack the Ripper had his big spree in London. Uh, the Austin guy was a, a pretty brutal killer, and uh, the, but the crimes are, are very unknown. I've met people who've lived all their lives in Austin who uh, just haven't heard of it, and they said, like, wow, really? I had no idea. So it's a, it's a pretty obscure uh, series of events, although getting a bit less so, because I think, you know, the internet being what it is, and also I think it, because of my first campaign for this film, uh, even though it, it didn't make its goal, and I'll talk a, a little bit about that and what I learned from that uh, in, in a minute here, uh, it still got some interest and, and some awareness out uh, about the crimes themselves. And so, uh, like, towards the end of the original campaign back in January, I was contacted by uh, a writer for uh, CNN HLN. Uh, he writes for you know, Nancy Grace's website, and he did a couple of articles, one about the murders and then another about my film specifically. And uh, then I've recently been contacted by a producer for a show History Detectives, which is on PBS. And uh, spoken to their producer, and now they want to do. Uh, they're 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 actually doing their own uh, a new spinoff series of that show, uh, coming up in the fall. Uh, and first season's coming up called uh, History Detectives: Colon Special Investigations. So I guess they're trying to be all, be all CSI. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but they're uh, but now they want to do the Servant Girl Murders as uh, as an episode of that show, and have asked me to be involved in that. And so so again, there's been some increasing awareness. You've got your uh, finger is, on um, on the pulse of something really exciting because, like you were saying with Jack the Ripper, um, serial killings back then they they weren't really known of. Maybe just the lack of forensic people people operating in forensics and everything. No, it was a it was a phenomenon that no one really was aware of. So it's a kind of a big deal that <laughs> that someone was on a murder spree in Austin when it was just a fledgling community. Yeah, you're right. I mean, serial killers as a, as a criminological phenomenon, I don't even think the the, uh, the term serial killers was coined until well into the 20th century. I'd have to uh, Wikipedia the thing to give you the exact date, but I'm, you know, your listeners are smart. They can figure that out. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, as a, as a, as a crime phenomenon, it was, it wasn't really known uh, or identified as such until, uh, very recently, comparatively recently, I'm sure that it has actually been a uh, a phenomenon that has existed uh, all throughout human civilization. I, I'm quite sure that ancient Rome and, and uh, Mesopotamia had serial killers of their equivalent. There's some something about a, a psychology involved there. But yes, they didn't have, of course, modern forensics. They didn't have uh, DNA. They didn't even have fingerprinting or blood typing. Uh, there was very little that they could do to uh, do the things that investigators can do today to link crimes together. And in fact, I don't think it was until even a decade after the uh, Ripper murders and the Servant Girl murders, when uh, you had this fellow going crazy in Chicago, H.H. Holmes, uh, who was kind of doing a lot of his murder spree uh, during the Chicago World's Fair. Whoa. And there, there have been a couple of uh, a, a pretty prominent books about uh, him. Uh, one of them is The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. It's a big bestseller. 
another really good book uh, called Deranged by Harold Schechter talked about Holmes and and then uh, an independent another independent filmmaker uh, a guy named John Borowski uh, did uh, a little micro budget documentary uh, about him that I saw and in in many ways his film about H H Holmes was what inspired me to uh, to pursue this film I, I looked at this and saw saw his film and thought well he looks like he's doing this uh, with very limited resources but. It's well put together, and it's compelling, and it's holding my interest, and it's and it's and it's, it seems like this is a very doable project. And, and at the time, I had been working um, just in film and television here locally, uh, you know, just for you know as a PA, AD, things like that. And I was looking for kind of a first project for myself to sort of launch into writing, directing. And I never really at the time thought about doing a documentary. And then this just seemed like, oh, well, why not? A bit of a surprise, you know, when you stumble upon something and, and it, it sends you off in a new direction that you never thought you would have pursued, but I think that that's part of the creative urge that's really exciting, and you know, suddenly just jumping off a cliff in another direction, and you know, saying, "Well, maybe I'll land on this one." But uh, <laughs> it's it's been a you know, it's it's been a that has been a really nice sort of experience of, of discovery. So, Martin, let me ask you something. You have the uh, you know you're making this documentary and you're doing all this research. No, without any spoilers, do you feel that it's possible? <laughs> spoilers. We'll get into history, but you know, it's. But he's looking into things that you know uh, oh, yeah, we don't know. Stark dies. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think you could solve this murder? Uh, well, I, I'm going to have to uh, agree with um, a fellow by the name of uh, Kim Rosmo, PhD, a criminologist, whom I've already uh, I've recorded one uh, on camera interview with. I'm going to do another one. He's one. He's one of my on camera interview subjects for the film. Uh, he's a detective. Well, he'd been a detective with the Vancouver Police Department for about 25 years. He's worked on hundreds of serial murders, uh, both directly and, and then as, in a consulting capacity. And so he really knows about how the police investigate serial murders, and, and especially about cold cases. Uh, Dr. Rosmo has actually done, his specialty is geographical profiling. This is where you take... Say, for example, you know, you have a series of serial murders and they're all going to kind of take place in, uh, with, you know, in a certain kind of geographical locus, right? And then they, so they, pin, they, they take that information and then they use that to kind of pinpoint the likeliest area where the killer might have in fact lived, uh, you know, his actual neighborhood. Um, getting young as most serial killers don't, you know, hop a bus and go 30 miles and do their crimes and they go, you know, they, they tend to have a stomping ground. And so he did uh, a geo profile of the servant girl murders just as an exercise for a, a peer reviewed paper. And, and he showed me that he sent me the PDF on all that. It was really fascinating to read. Um, and his view is that 130 years after the fact, you're, you're not going to solve the crimes. You're not going to solve them, right? You're uh, serious. Uh, serial killings. They're, they're very, very difficult crimes to solve mainly because most people are, killed by people who know them, that you either have an association with them. Uh, they're either, um, I, you're either, there's either a close association, uh, such as, you know, a jilted romantic partner or spouse or what have you, or an angry co-worker, you know, does a workplace shooting or something crazy like that. But when you have stranger crimes, where someone's just going around, some rando is just going around killing uh, whoever for, you know, just some, whatever kind of thrill he gets out of it. Well, that nexus is broken, and so you know, as, as so as an investigator, there that is a very very difficult gap that you have to bridge because then there, the the main investigative techniques for solving murders tend to be either eyewitness statements, or you'll have a suspect confess. That's really nice, you know, um, convenient if you can get it. But 130 years after the fact, without being able to look at things like witness statements, without actually be, being able to investigate 
you know, surviving crime scene evidence, which for these crimes, there is none. I've, I don't even think there are any crime scene photos. Uh, I am about to get my hand. Don't tell anyone. We're going to totally cut this part out. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> the killer is going to find uh, out. Um, I, I think I'm about to get my hands on a photo of one of the actual homes where one of the crimes took place. And I don't think this is something that anyone's ever seen. It, it won't be of the night that, that the murder happened, but it, it will at least be a photograph of this home, of this location, so we can know what it looked like. That's how, that is how spare and how uh, hard it is when you're dealing with a, a series of uh, murders like this. If you don't have the, the, um, the evidence on hand, if you don't have really solid primary sources. So the best you can do is just draw up a list of possibilities. And say, here are the likeliest suspects. You can look at everyone who was either brought in for questioning or arrested and let go later or what have you. And you can say, of the many possible suspects you have, these guys are more plausible than others. Uh, I, there's a fellow in town who's a researcher who thinks he's kind of nailed it. It's not a, a solution I, w- I will dismiss out of hand, but at the end of the day, the best I, I'd be willing to say is, yes, I think that is a good plausible um, solution, or it's possible, but you, you're never going to be able to say, oh, it's solved. <laughs> uh, right. And, 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 you know, maybe that's, and, and that's the mystique. I have to say, you know, as a storyteller and film, I have to understand, you know, you, you kind of, at a certain point, you have to concede that is the mystique. You know, if we solved Jack the Ripper, that would actually kind of suck, wouldn't it? Because now we wouldn't have this big, wonderful historical mystery to be tantalized by for generation after generation. You know, I, I think that would uh, that would actually kind of be a sad thing if we found out who Jack the Ripper. First off, it would be incredibly anticlimactic, right? Everybody, I think, would be like, "Who?" You know, after all these years and years of people putting together their pet theories about is this person or that person. Um, so it was. So that would be the first thing. It would be a real letdown. And then, uh, and then, of course, this whole cultural mystery now will have gone away. So um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, if you could solve them, and, and certainly the history detectives people want to solve them, and I'm trying to be honest with them and say good luck with that. Um, the, best, <laughs> the best you can do in, from an investigational standpoint is just say, well, of the many people involved in these crimes, you know, I, like I have some, some of the, there, there are some people that I, I think look good. Right, like I could say, hmm, well, this guy, yeah, yeah. and I'm not sure why they weren't able to pin anything on him. But if he did X, Y, and Z as it's accounted for in the newspapers, then I think that is really super suspicious. You mentioned um, you mentioned but, um, Jack the Ripper. Now, I did see on I think it was on the Wikipedia page or, or somewhere that there's a suspect who was also a suspect for Jack the Ripper. That was also a suspect for the servant girl annihilator. Whoa, really? It was a Malay cook that was on a ship. He was running on ocean vessels. Um, he was a suspect in the Jack the Ripper murders, but he was also employed at a small hotel in Austin in 1885 and then left, I think, in 1888. I think that's actually kind of a thin uh, connection that people are drawing. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of like a straw I, man. It's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it's people kind of probably jumping to conclusions about things a little bit faster than they could. Um, the melee cook, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, he sounds really exotic, doesn't he? The melee cook. <laughs> no, no, he sounds like a Sherlock, he sounds like a Sherlock Holmes uh, villain. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Sounds like a Peter Laurie character out of sure. some old movie, you know. And, um, yeah, th- it, this is one of those things where you can say, "Yeah, well, you get you get sort of tantalizing hints of, of of possibilities here," but then if you try to follow them through, at a certain point, people just kind of make leaps of imagination, and um, and and just sort of fill in gaps without really having just good, solid evidence uh, to justify doing so. If you look at the, the difference between the, the Servant Girl murderer and Jack the Ripper, uh, just from a, um, you know, a standpoint of 
criminology and MO, it's vanishingly small, the likelihood that they were this, the same guy. Um, you had, uh, in the Servant Girl murders, you had most of the, most of the victims were African-American domestic servants, most of them cooks. Uh, the MO for the murder was that in most of the murders, the, uh, the, the victim was subdued inside the house. Uh, the murder was striking way in the middle of the night, any time between, say, 2 and 4 in the morning were the common like, attack times. This was sort of like when, his, when he was doing it. Uh, the, the victim would be subdued in the house and dragged outside of the house, usually uh, well into the yard, uh, out by some sort of outbuilding, whether like an outhouse or a woodshed or something like that. And then the murder was done there, either behind or in the vicinity of or inside the outbuilding, outside of the main house. Um, the, uh, the, the murders were tended to be bludgeoning-style killings, uh, you know, blunt force trauma, usually using either an axe. So there was sort of a, yeah, there was a blow and sometimes a whole lot of, lot of cutting damage involved as well. So, so completely, <laughs> completely, lacks, <laughs> completely lacks the finesse of the Jack the Ripper modus operandi. These were just rage murders. Um, the, the, the youngest victim, Mary Ramey, was killed by having this a, a long kind of, like an awl, like a, like a very long uh, steel like spike or an implement like that driven into her brain through her ears. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds like for people wondering. Thank you for Welcome. that. <laughs> yeah, probably sounded a little worse than that, actually. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so, it, so these, were, these were just... Horrible, horrible explosions of rage on the part of the murder. Whereas you've got Jack the Ripper, who is a killing sort of European white prostitutes and uh, essentially performing kind of amateur street surgery on them in this very sort of methodical, meticulous, almost you know, oddly obsessive, you know, OCD, thoughtful kind of way, where he's like does the killing and then it's all very quiet and he's, and he's careful not to, and he kind of does his business and then he collects an organ or two and then just quietly scampers off into the dark and, uh, and no one hears screams, no one hears noises. Uh, there's not, you know, it, until he, and then he, but he kind of levels up as he goes on to his killings until he gets to uh, Mary Kelly, the last victim, you know, where he just sort of like cut her into all kinds of little bits and left her all over the room. And then that, that's where the killer gets to the point. There's kind of a point of escalation where you can't really escalate anymore. And then at that point, the killer either, if he's uncaught, it's the case where maybe, you know, maybe he's just so insane that he either commits suicide or he is arrested for some other kind of, some other crime uh, or, you know, his uh, friends or family members uh, notice that he's acting a little bit strange and, you know, maybe have him <laughs> sent away or something. Uh, but, you know, that, that's that's the other factor of why do these guys stop? Like, for example, why did Jack the Ripper do, do his number of victims and then stop at a certain point? Why did the Servant Girl murders stop after the last two? There's usual, usually a pattern of escalation that gets to a certain point. And then um, you know, where you, you can't really imagine just the madness can go any further. And so any number of things probably could have happened. And it's very unlikely that um, you would have somebody just working kind of a normal job, right? And um, being a cook or what have you, and then just sort of calmly doing this, and then kind of stopping at the end of 1885, but then, you know, what he, he just keeps working his cook job for a few more years, because why not? You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's some kind of madness going on here, and now there's something would have happened, uh, you know, to, to have uh, called uh, people's attention to, uh, you know, to the cook and his deeds a little bit uh, earlier. You know, you, you would have th you'd think that the, the, you know, the cook would probably have other crimes, uh, other kind of, you know, he would be exhibiting kind of, you know, increasingly erratic antisocial behaviors. We're going to cut to a song, and when we get back, we'll talk about the, uh, the kickstarting side of bloody work. 
What we got right now is Money by Will Post. Will Post, the solo project by Bill from I Fight Dragons. This is a uh, cover of the I Fight Dragons track, which was uh, for their compilation album uh, that they're organizing in, in celebration of the success of their Kickstarter. Seemed incredibly appropriate for this episode. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Where it's at, green. Moon. 
will never let you down You can bet your life on that mm, Cause when pushing comes to shove Money conquers faith and love You can buy them up for nothing down Hey, money So, bloody work. The Kickstarter has been some trials and tribulations. Uh, how's the? This is your first Kickstarter, I believe, right, Martin? Uh, this project is yes. No, this is the second now Kickstarter for the same project. But yeah, first project. How how have you found the experience being deep into some a very multi layered creative project on Kickstarter? Well, definitely instructive. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, in, in, but in good ways, right? I learned from the first one uh, several lessons that I think are, are probably fairly uh, tough for, for people, um, you know, from an artistic background. And, you know, and Cap, you and I know each other from many years ago and, you know, uh, a mutual interest in the comics business. And so that is a, that's a creative field in which you, you begin to learn the psychology of the artist, which is that many of us are, we're all about our art. But we find it very tasteless and very intimidating to be about the business side of things. Yeah, and th- being able to wear both hats, and you do have to wear both hats at a certain point. You have to kind of get over yourself a little bit and say, you know, at a, at a certain kind, I have to be sort of a huckster and sell myself. And and uh, you know, I've done it poorly uh, in you know throughout my life. You're not necessarily going to be talented at both things, and uh, and I certainly know that the uh, the business and production end of it is not where my my talents lie specifically, but uh, I always just try to learn from it. And so when the first Kickstarter didn't make its goal, uh, I first tried to take the positive lessons, uh, you know, and and not spend my time wallowing in disappointment about the whole thing. And so I uh, decided, okay, I looked at it and said, all right, well, perhaps I just simply had too ambitious a goal. Perhaps I needed to uh, make the, what the project was about uh, more clear. Uh, perhaps I needed to just present myself as a credible creator producer a little bit better, uh, you know, to to persuade you know the public to get on board. Maybe I had to uh, have a little bit more clarity in in, in my uh, my reward tiers, what I was offering people, uh, and so I just tried to learn from all of this. Uh, one of the things that I really have learned about Kickstarter, and this is something that is going to be very unpleasant to hear if someone is an aspiring creator hoping to 
you know, realize their dream by putting up a project. And, you know, this is not one of those things where you just put it on and, and wait for the heavens to open up and money rain down upon you and, and the gods to, to smile and all that. You know, it does not work that way. Kickstarter is very much not an if you build it, they will come thing. You do have to lay groundwork and very serious groundwork before you do one of these things. You have to have not just a solid base of, of friends and uh, colleagues and family and uh, you know, and, and if you're already someone who has uh, like a, a history uh, as an artist or uh, out there reaching an audience, if you have kind of a, a support base or a fan base, if you want to call it that, to kind of build off of, you really do kind of need that there. You need an immediate network and community of people to plug into to support your project, uh, and you need to do that and lay all that groundwork down. I would say, good God, at least a year or you know, make longer before you actually launch your project. I mean, you really need to get out there. You need to, you need to be making connections, and it needs to be about seriously building a community, like forging these kind of interactions with people and getting to know people uh, you know, for, for quite a long time, not, in, not just getting them to like you for you know, what you do artistically and being willing to just throw money at you, but there is kind of a community building aspect of that. And you really need you really need to work on that, uh, and it takes a lot of work. It takes serious work. It's not something that everyone is going to be able to do as well. It's not something that everyone is going to have the same opportunity to be as successful at as other people. You know, that's just the way. Uh, you know, that for, especially how the internet works, right? I mean, there are you you can look at some things, and you can say you can look at, for example, why does this blog get two hundred thousand readers, and the other one only get three thousand readers when they seem to be both just as good. Well, you know, the other one just had, you know, was just better at the community building. And, uh, you know, and it's also like Kickstarter. You can look at Kickstarter projects and you can say to yourself, well, this one kind of looks sort of cheesy and dumb, but he's got 200 grand in pledges. And here's this <laughs> other one that I think is a really, really great worthwhile project, but nobody's backing it. And what's going on? You know, right. again, it's the, it's the, the, the laying of the groundwork to get that base of support behind you. It's something that cannot be understated and can't, and you can't, get away with not doing it and hope that someone will just, you know, the wonderfulness of whatever it is you're offering will be good enough to see you through the day. It's not, you know, you really do have to have a lot of work. You are the one as the creator who has to prove your credibility. Um, not just that you have a quality project, but that you are someone competent enough and dedicated enough and passionate enough and organized enough to actually do the freaking thing. If you get your money, uh, that's a huge uh, a huge thing that uh, you've really—that's a huge responsibility that you have got to meet. Yeah, you can't—you can't fund and avoid. So I, it seems like the uh, the industry itself is is all about how much of a pre-existing audience you have to bolster your project. Well, for one thing, being uh, on my relaunch for Bloody Work, I was very fortunate in that the people who were really passionate about the film the first time around, uh, particularly my high-dollar backers. Uh, all said, look, we're sorry we didn't make it. It's very disappointing. But look, I mean, I, I think it's a great idea for a movie and I'm still with you. So just let me know when you are ready to to get it going again. And and I'm with you. Right. And that's a wonderful feeling. But what it also led to was a situation where, for example, in my first campaign for Bloody Work back in January, it took 35 out of the 45 days of the campaign for for pledges to crack 10,000. And this was on a campaign that had a, a pretty high, uh, <laughs> very ambitious goal at the time. I think my original goal was forty-eight thousand. You know, I, what I did was I just took absolutely everything, and I just 
slammed it all into a big budget and just went for all of it. So again, live and learn, right? You know, so, but that was uh, 35 days to, to get to 10,000 on the first campaign. Relaunch, that took 70 hours. And so what the difference there is, of course, now for the relaunch, all the momentum has been front-loaded, had a huge momentum in the first week of the campaign. And that's also very important because then it allows you not only to hit your goal uh, a lot more quickly, and especially if you're smart enough to make your goal a bit more modest and then hit, try to hit stretch goals, but it also works in that kind of psychological per, uh, perception that you mentioned that uh, that you know people have. If something just comes right out of the gate and it's going like a greyhound, people are like, hmm, okay, well, maybe I'll pay attention to this then. And um, whereas if you are looking at a project like my original campaign, and you might say to yourself, well, he's got a good trailer, and it looks like a really cool mystery, and it uh, looks like it would be really good, but he's only at 12 – he's only you know, 30% of his goal, and he has two days left. This one's not going to make it. Well, not only and that, so, but I mean – And so they just don't pledge. It becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. They're also looking um, for a name with recognition. I mean, I mean you've done some stuff. You, know, you, have a, you have a history, right? You're not new to the film industry or, the, or television or anything like that. But if it was, well, I'm not for example, level, but, yeah. no, right, no, no, no. But no. if it's, but if it was like Mel Gibson who was uh, running this Kickstarter, it would have eighteen million dollars by now because well, but you know. That, but that, but of course, right. I mean, if you have, if you're world famous, then yes. Right. Well, let's say it was a more and more, more and more people will know who you are. More and more people will be willing to support you. It does seem unfair that Project A that happens to have Mr. Celebrity Man involved you know gets all this attention all this funding all the you know write-ups on whatever tmz and what have you and then this other thing by incredibly talented highly deserving but you know unknown dude somewhere is really struggling to make it but that's kind of always been the case from time immemorial i mean however talented and brilliant he is mr struggling artist is is gonna have to spend those years laying that groundwork to get his awareness and exposure up and up and up and up to where then he can, you know, and, and it will take time. His first thing will have very minimal support. If it gets out there and it's really good and it spreads around, his next thing after that will have less minimal. And then the next one will have good support. And then suddenly, you know, a few years down the road, he's got a really terrific big audience that he can build upon. You ju- you ju- it does take a lot of building. But now in terms of saying, okay, well, once you've done that, once if you have successfully pulled that process of building your base off over however many years it's taking you to do it. And you are now in the position of being, you know, not necessarily an A-list star, but certainly a respectable enough guy. You've got a successful show, a successful movie. You've got a million Twitter followers and you probably have a pretty good sized bank account. All right. Does that mean now that you have a moral obligation to stop hitting up the fans for the money when you're ready to do a thing? And that's a tough call. I mean, on the one hand, it's be like, all right, say I want to make a film. And like, I'm a rich dude and I want to do it completely independently. And I don't want to have to answer to idiot investors who want to snatch my creative control away and, and demanding all of these decisions, uh, you know, and that, that I don't want to hand over to them. So here's what I, do. I look at my project realistically. I look at my budget. I look at uh, what my goals are and I say to myself, okay, well, am I going to take the uh, financial risk of losing all this money? Right, because remember that a lot of indie stuff just flat loses money, even when it's really good, or at best it breaks even, or or so you so you kind of have to go into a labor of love sort of thing. So here's what you can say: you can say I'm going to take a million dollars out of my bank account, and you know hopefully this won't impact the kids' college fund too much, and I'm just going to spend that, and I'm going to make my dream and make my movie, and if I lose it, well, I, you know I've 
I've realized my dream, but I've lost that, right? You know, and I don't really get all of that back. You can do this, or what you can do is you can say, I'm going to put this thing on a crowdfunding site. I'm going to offer it in like little $10, $20 chunks. People can pitch in. I want to make this movie. You like my movies? You want to see a new movie I want to make? Here's a movie I want to make my way. Pitch in 20 bucks. You get a DVD of the movie when it's done. You know, I'll give you a little thank you, whatever it is, whatever perk that you want to offer the fan. And here's what happens. You raise a million dollars that way. You make your film. And if you don't get, say, a distribution deal, or if you get some kind of deal, but it flops or something, or if it doesn't actually make that million dollars back through whatever means you try to get it out there to the public, the people who have thrown money at you, you made the movie, they got their DVD, they got to see your new movie, they're happy. You're happy because you didn't just risk your kid's college fund on a thing and lose it all. So the movie got made. The fans didn't really lose because they were kind of pitching it at a very, very, very small level to begin with. And they were told exactly what they would get for that. And they got it when they were told they were going to get it. The movie exists. The people who wanted to see it are seeing it. And it's out there. And the risk on the whole, I think, has really been minimized. I don't see myself as running a huge, huge risk if there, there's an if. Some independent person, and maybe I've heard of him, maybe he's famous, or maybe he's Joe Blow. But if I put 10 bucks into his movie, and in exchange for that, I'll get a, a download or a DVD or a chance to see the movie or a thank you. If his thing comes out, and it's not a big box office monster, big freaking deal. What did I spend? I spent 10 bucks. I saw the thing. He got to make it. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't even any good, but he got to do it. And I'm not really out a whole lot. I'm out the cost of a sandwich and a Coke. I still see it as an open field where everybody can still play. And maybe the you know dichotomy will change, but I, I don't I share Martin's optimism on, on the on the subject. Well, my big my big worry, too, you know, is as well, you know, and is not necessarily well founded yet because there are. Things over a million dollars, which we can safely assume is stuff that where the odds were stacked, right? Uh, only accounts for thirty-four out of the forty-two thousand projects funded. I did, however, just find a statistic that backs up our theory that if something's not funded over a certain amount, it's going to be a big flop. Mm -hmm. There's projects that are failures. These have not funded. Okay, eighty-one to ninety-nine percent funded, and then pff, nothing. Right, three hundred and twenty-five compared to things that were one to twenty percent funded. 33,937. <laughs> and it just goes down from there, right? So basically, if somebody sees something 20%, meh, I'm not going to do it. If it's basically the sweet number, so if, you're, if you've got a Kickstarter in right now and you've hit at least uh, 40 or 60%, you can feel good knowing that you are now uh, heading for success at, at the very least, unless you're the 325. Yeah. So that is but something I that see happens. That, again, yeah. that's just a natural part of the psychology of it. I of don't course, really yeah. think that has to do with whether you're... Um, you know, uh, a, a, a famous, rich, but I agree with you. I mean, but that, that's just natural human psychology. And I think that that's, that if the, if the perception right away, not going to make it, then yes, people won't go. And I think that's again, a real problem. And so you're just seeing that same psychology. What is what I'm saying in, in terms of Kickstarter, uh, campaigns, right? This mm -hmm. is why, you know, I think that, uh, being able to, you know, have my second campaign for bloody work reach its goal in three days, uh, where, whereas the, the previous campaign, it took 35 days just for it to cross the 10,000 mark. And by the time it was on its last day, it was only at 36% of funding. So I, I can't exactly have blamed anyone who looking at it and saying, looks like a good movie, but I, it's obvious it's not going to make it and tuning out. It's, I can't really blame that. Uh, that attitude. So uh, it was up to me. It was up to me to do better on the relaunch and ensure that the relaunch got the momentum in those first crucial, you know, 
five, six, seven days. And then it's now it's up here and it's 134% funded. And, and yes, that looks a lot better. And I just have to understand that that's a reality. It's going to happen. So that's great. That's good. Uh, anybody who wants to can get in on it still as of this episode's release. So you have until uh, June 25th to fund the, uh, the film. Real quick, what are some of the, uh, the high-profile support tiers that you want to advertise for people to get in on? What I'm thinking of here, and, and I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to do a little bit better. I'm thinking about reworking my stretch goals to concentrate less on monetary amounts than on just building the backers. For example, instead of saying, well, I need, now I want to raise X dollars to get to this goal. I'm thinking more in terms of, well, here I am at 165 backers today, but I'd like to get 500 or 1,000 because now it's about, I just want eyeballs watching my film. I want people to see my movie. So, you know, if you want to pitch in five bucks or 10 bucks or 100 or 500 or whatever, if you're willing to come on board at any level, I'm really grateful to you because now what's important to me that the main goal has been reached is just people. Now, it's people more than a particular dollar figure. And that's kind of the direction that I'm thinking about going on. But having said that, uh, some of the pledge tiers that are higher up, I tried to get a little bit more creative and realistic with them. If you're a high-end backer and if you want to be an associate producer, there is a $500 tier where I will take you on a guided tour of Oakwood Cemetery here in Austin. This is the big historical cemetery downtown by the university, where quite a number of the, uh, the, the people involved who were involved with these crimes and who were alive at the time of the murders, a couple of victims and, and other people of note are buried there. I'm going to take people on a tour. I'm going to give you sort of a live murder tour, talk about the history and sort of give a little lecture while I do it. And so that's a thing that, that's a package you get. You know, there's the tour plus a lunch. And those are, they're limited to 10. And, and so, you know, some $500 backers get those. And then, of course, I have uh, on the higher end, for example, executive producer credits where you get a really, you know, beautiful slipcase edition of a movie and, uh, you know, your name and on IMDb. And uh, I will come to your town at a certain level and do a screening there if you live outside of Austin. And then the full producer package, which there was only one of, uh, which was the first pledge I got, actually. Nice. Um, yeah. That was that was a that was a previous talk about building your base. That was a a previous backer who was like, please let me know, and they came in first thing. So you know, the, this this individual is going to get to attend shoots. They'll get to attend recording sessions, uh, any sort of festival screenings, press junkets. They'll be invited to attend that, and of course to the premiere screening. I'll also go to their city if they live outside of Austin, do the thing there. So again, a lot of real personal one-on-one -on -one interaction. Whatever it is to kind of keep that individual one-on-one, -on -one, that personability, you know, and, and make and, and make the send the message abundantly clear that you know this isn't just about you know. I mean, yeah, thanks for the money, but I, I want to build a rapport now. I want to build an audience. I want to I want to connect with people on this because that's just where it's all going to come from in the future. As many folks as I can just bring into the party at whatever level they feel like they want to come in. If you think that this looks like a really fascinating film, even if you even if you don't think of yourself much as a documentary fan, I think you'll really like this one. It's going to be good compelling storytelling because that's all any movie tries to do, you know, whether it's Iron Man or whether it's some Ken Burns documentary, the whole point is the same, right? Yeah. You want to tell people a good cool story that holds their interest. It makes them go, wow, that was a good story. And that's really what I want to do. And so if you think that this might be the thing for you, please check it out and join. I don't care what level you join in. That's up to you. And I'm grateful for all. I'm grateful for 
$5 backers and I'm grateful to $500 backers. You know, it's it all it's all meaningful. Really cool for all the history buffs out there. And remember, you have till Tuesday, June 25th to back the project. Bloody work on Kickstarter. And of course, we'll have a link to it on this episode's page. Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to have Thank you on you the episode. Thank you for having me, Nerdy Show. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, it was a lot of fun and I hope I, I'm very bad at rambling, so I hope I didn't overly ramble. <laughs> hey, man. You're you're just a, you're just a, a rambling docu historian, just rambling on down the road. <laughs> Born a rambling man. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Jermaine. <laughs> we got a uh, another track we're gonna cut to, and when we get back, we're gonna be talking about some of the projects on uh, Kickstarter that, that we've got. That we were a little conflicted over uh, things like maybe the Ouya, for example. The track you got right here, "Adventure Time" by Adam Warrock. For someone who's never done a Kickstarter, Adam Warrock has been incredibly successful, and he's been fan-funded. This month marks his annual fundraiser campaign, and you can find details about that on this episode's page. You have to help me! I can't do this without you! Okay, fine. But only if you swear not to hit me anymore. I swear I won't hit you anymore. And also swear to only speak in rhymes. Speak in rhymes all the time. I swear. Adventure time, grab your friends. We'll go to very distant lands. We'll take the tug and the human. The fun will never end. Adventure time. Hey, we're gonna go on an adventure. Hey, you wanna go on an adventure? Come on, you wanna go all right then. The fun will never end. Adventure time. Pour up and Jay to play like they do every day. Adventure in a place so far away. Deep in imagination, the land of food. She gives me a look, man, it gives me a rush Hold up, more adventure, grab your sword and your backpack Grab a best friend, cause you know we'll have some laughs That might last forever, even if the world ends And the magic comes back if we never do again So do all those bad guys and people with bad habits Come and catch a ride on the knuckle train of this planet Starchy's got a grave that he's digging and it's fitted for the villains And I'm checking the clock, you know what time it is Adventure time, grab your friends, we'll go to very distant lands we Jake the see that in the sky? 
It's the Jermaine symbol. Oh shit. We're gonna lose you. It's the Germanicorn. You gotta you gotta split man? Afraid so. Oh, all right, the city well. needs magic. <laughs> I've got some unicorns attending too. Farewell, nerdy show. Till next time. <laughs> oh, adios, Germanicorn. Adios. <laughs> all right. So in the last segment, I mentioned the Ouya, and uh, that's actually one of the uh, inciting incidents for this episode. In fact, because uh, us nerdy show people were talking, and and uh, there was some rage. In short, the Ouya is uh, something we, I think we've probably mentioned on video game episodes. It's a kickstarted uh, home console that's meant to be... Uh, it's, very, it's very simple. It's not like uh, a powerhouse or anything, but it's meant to be an open door or indip- independent game companies. And there's a bunch of uh, large game companies that have also taken an interest into it. When it debuted, it was everybody's darling. But, uh, but since things have started rolling out, they've, they've started getting like a release schedule for, say, large stores and so on, the scene has changed somewhat. So we're going to talk about everybody's skepticism about that. Yeah, well, first I would say great job at ignoring this red herring or this uh, elephant in the room, everyone, until now to make people listen. I thought you, I yeah, thought I thought you guys were going to like really You know what it was, though? It's because I felt like we were going to need an entire segment to bitch about it. So I didn't want to use up any of my bitch juice. <laughs> So yeah, the three of us are backers, right? Yo, dude, yes. I uh, the four of four us. of us early Man, cap. I weren't. I didn't know you were a part oh. of it as well. Yeah, what? Well, I mean, I, it's probably our yeah. fault. We were probably all like, "Oh man, check out this!" Oh yeah, we back. Well, I mean, this. I, awesome. I, I really, I you know, I considered it, you know, a, a nerdy show thing like this. Like, you know, we were all invested. We were all looking at it, being like, "Man, well, I was, I was late in the game." But I thought, you know, well, this could be the future. This could, right. This could be very important. So it's it's fucking cheap. I got to get in on it, which is I think what everybody said. Oh my god, it's so cheap. How can I not do it? And see, yeah. the, the the major the major uh, thing is, you know, for those of us with early adopteritis, it was almost a perfect storm, right? It it almost immediately uh, funded. They were promising all sorts of great deadlines, all sorts of good stuff. Um, you know, the it looked pretty rad. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a basically a cube that kind of glows. Allegedly, we don't. None of us know because we don't have our hands on it, but. That's that's what we know about it. And they had all sorts of cool stuff, Kickstarter exclusives, like, you know, you can get your username ahead of time and you can get it like etched on your console if you have like a million dollars or something. It's run. It's basically a glorified Android op- operating system, which, by the way, I can already tell you blows from having used the Google TV, but that's OK. <laughs> the reason why I got into it is it's a very interesting concept in that it's a completely open source console that allows you to access all these interesting open source things that you would otherwise have to do homebrew stuff to your old consoles or new consoles, depending on, you know, if you want to avoid your warranty in order to access certain things to for your television, like, you know, Media Center and uh, playing emulators and so on and so forth. But this since this is an open source console, it allows for that sort of, you know, interesting, fun stuff to occur, which is why I was like, oh, hey, yeah, I'll spend a hundred bucks and get this thing. Um, you know, and a lot of people did that, considering it got eight. million worth of, you know, pledges. So I guess you could almost say the uh, the floor fell out from under us when they started uh, missing deadlines. They mentioned that they're going to be in major stores, major store chains, and we still haven't gotten our early copies. And then they also at at that time said, oh, well, if you got a special console that was supposed to be your special color or if you ordered an extra controller, you were shoved to the back of the list because it's really hard to make that stuff. Right. But and those are the folks who like really were believing in the, in the <laughs> system and so on. Yeah, so exactly. forth. So it's like so the folks who are paying the most are getting shoved to the back of the line. And honestly, 
you know, the way that this whole thing went shook out was, and, and one of the issues that I have with Kickstarter is that some of these corporations, development companies will make it seem like they are, I mean, they might have a flashy video and stuff like that, and that's all great, but it might seem like they are more of an independent company than they actually are. Um, which is what definitely I felt like from the Ouya. I thought that they had this really big idea and they had some money to obviously make this thing, get it off the ground. But I had no idea that they had, that this was kind of like a cog in their giant game plan to make Ouya in every household. It is clear that this was just a kind of a marketing ploy to get Ouya in the world of the internet and get people talking about it so they could get it in the big stores and stuff like that. And, and it seems like we just got used. But could Ouya exist without this crowdfunding, even though they were a substantiated company yes. before? I mean, could they really have existed um, on this scale? If, if it's a big enough concept, if it was an important enough concept for these stores to to want to put it on the shelves. Granted, you don't, you don't think granted that they that's, could pay for it. They you don't think have, that this it being on the store shelves is as a result of the fame it got from the Kickstarter that only could have existed that that way? Potentially, but I mean, there's other devices that are like this that exist without it. There's those uh, things where you can play. I mean, obviously, it's not as intense, right? What are those emulators where you could actually stick a Super Nintendo game in the handheld device? The, like, yeah. the, like the Super Boy and Retro Duo? Right. I mean, things like that existed without crowd, uh, crowdfunding. Right. Well, I think it's kind of, I think the crowdfunding kind of gives it credibility in a way. So it's kind of harkens back to what, you know, was said earlier is that you kind of prove to these retailers that this is, this is a valid concept and that they're making a good investment on this product because look at all of these people that backed this Kickstarter. And that's great. Um, and that, and then, and that's good, but you got to think for a second that maybe that's the reason why we're not getting our consoles on time is that they now made these oh, no, big production no, absolutely. changes. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I, and I don't, I don't think that that's right, but I think they also, so I listened to their VP of marketing speak at the hardware innovation workshop where they were kind of talking about their troubles and their issues that they ran into. And I think they have an issue that a lot of hardware people on Kickstarter have, and it's what to do when you're so successful, you know, you plan to make a certain number of units. And then if all of a sudden this explodes and you have to make millions and millions and millions of units, it's, oh shit, what do we do? It's the timeline not, might not be the same because you may have been est- estimating a timeline for your original estimate. And and now it's all of a sudden like, oh, okay, well maybe I can get a better price from this other metal supplier. Or, you know, if I'm making this many boards, I can get them requote, but the fab house is going to take an extra month or, you know, what have you. Or it might've been simply a cost issue where they think, well, we have all these Kickstarters, but then if we sell to retail, we can double our order and get an even lower price. Right. So I think it was just a really interesting, unique hardware problem. But I feel like that's a real rookie mistake. I mean, I know people that have invented and then and then um, gone into production of their own devices. Um, oh, totally. And, and he, he openly admitted that mistake. none of them had any hardware experience. Well, the other Not problem, a single person on that team. But the other that's, thing that's is... A, that's a huge... For, Jesus. But for $8.5 million, you couldn't take a million and a half or two million of that because I know it's not going to cost them $8.5 million to actually produce the, dev- the devices that they have to produce. But they couldn't have taken that money, maybe opened up their own factory, started their own operation, you know, things like that. I know people that have done that because they got fed up with issues in China, like where you pay, you know, three cents for a bolt and they give you a bolt that's worth half a cent instead. And then they still charge the three, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah, with the money they could have. But I think then it comes into time. 
So, I mean, so my, my company actually set up an sure. office yeah. in China and that's like a year long effort. You know, they promised what, like it was like six months from when the Kickstarter ended to when we were supposed to get them. Mm. So that's, that doesn't leave a lot they, of time. They had a working prototype at that time though, when they started the Kickstarter. Right. But they a working prototype to production units is a whole. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, they didn't even have a design for it at that point. No, though. they were showing in their, in their first video, they showed the. the really? Yeah, they did. They did show initial designs. However, through the through the comments in the Kickstarter, they were able to redesign the nerd aspects rages. of the controller and et cetera. So, I mean, yeah, this ended on August 9th of 2012. And here we are in June and Heading for August, you know, yeah, barrel assing towards August. The other thing is they continued and maybe this is where they got greedy and it's really screwed them. They continue to take pre-orders. And those pre-orders are yeah. shipping. Some of them, people, some of them are getting them before Kickstarters have, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's the the whole issue with this Ouya thing. Is so they got is they that, got greedy. Like it's just, it feels like it feels like you know you put your money into this thing, like like you know it backfired. Like you have this issue of like I feel like I was a part of this. Like I feel like I made this happen. Right? We we talked about this earlier in the episode, and then you're like, okay, I helped make this happen, and now you're not giving me my due. Like thanks a lot. Thank thank you for you know I, i'm helping you out and now you're basically just being like well fuck you i don't i'm just gonna take your money and then just shit in your face in, in my you know in I mean? my corner i feel i'm just happy that you know if if i if i pay for a product if it comes sooner or later and i mean there's i'm not in a rush to get it i'm concerned about an issue of entitlement here like i mean obviously we we funded it early we invested it we made it possible and we're entitled to certain things but at what point does it become unreasonable? What our expectations are? Well, yeah, but our, my expectation was that they weren't going, that they needed this Kickstarter. That was how many units they were going to make, right? For now, until they were able to fulfill their productions. And then that the pre-orders were going to ship when they were done with Kickstarter. I, I would, I always assume that if someone's doing well, they're just going to take it to the logical extreme. A pre-order, though, should come out when the system's released, not... Yeah, it's not... I mean, I guess it's a matter of entitlement to a degree, but it's also to the to the idea of, like, if you are... I mean, essentially, when you're doing a Kickstarter, you're, you're like, a producer of a, you know, this thing, and you don't... You, you expect results. It's not a matter of, you know, being entitled. It's a matter of, I paid for this, and I expect this to be followed through, and not in a way where, like... If I'm if I'm lining up in a line with, you know, waiting for my, you know, coffee and the two people behind me get their coffee before I get it, even though we I paid for it, you know, way before those guys did. I mean, I'm going to feel I'm going to feel pissed off and, and rightfully so. I mean, that's a really shitty analogy, but that's essentially <laughs> that's super like petty. What's yeah. going on. <laughs> well, I think, you know, and, and granted, and I'll kind of go to the Xbox one on this. Uh, I've always erred on, you know, I've always given them the benefit of the doubt. You know, give the I've given the company the benefit of the doubt. It's and and Colin can attest to that. We've been having some Xbox One conversations. So for me to say that they got greedy and stupid means that they've hit a level of greed and stupidity that goes beyond my very high shelf. Right, your personal threshold. Greed, yeah, Yeah. and and it's very high. Um, (laughs) You know, like you know, a company's been dumping. Yeah, a company's been dumping chemicals. He doesn't consider Microsoft to be greedy. It's very high. And you know, like a company uh, dumps some chemicals in the river, and I go, "Well, shit happens." You know, whatever. Everybody else is like, you know, oh, but all the you know eight arm babies, and I'm like, "Uh, it happens. So, so for me to say that, I mean, that's like, that's that's they've gotten pretty insane. Also, remember, by the way, um, they're the creators of the Jambox, 
Do you know what the jam box is? It's a oh, they are. I very, didn't know that. Yeah, actually, it says it. It's one of the first things they show on their Kickstarter. Is that the little the little thing that you you stick on your keychain that like plays MP3 nope. players? It loud? is a no. Bluetooth. No. It is a Bluetooth speaker. Yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing. The, you know, when you say like they didn't have any experience, they've done this before. That was when I. So when I say they make a rookie mistake, I'm talking about like you know it's it insert famous athlete you know running the wrong way with the football. Yeah. Right? Well, no, I didn't know about the jam box. This is Clearly, it's, um, it's, this is what the VP of marketing said in his talk at the hardware innovation workshop that was put on by Make Magazine before Maker Fair. Right. Was I mean, that nobody on the team had hardware experience. Well, okay. He flat out lied to you because literally it says under the video, like you go to the Kickstarter page, right under the video, it says cracking open the last closed platform, the TV, a beautiful, affordable console built on Android by the creator of Jambox. Oh, wow. Literally lied to your face. But was well, it this Julie person? May mayhaps mayhaps why did no she, it might have been the um did she rage quit the the creator could have been the designer like the designer of Jambox well, it like, says built they, by they were, though it says they were built playing by. up that designer I don't even know his name like they were playing up that designer when they came out with the Ouya they were like oh blah 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 this designer oh my god <laughs> but it says then, but it does say literally yeah. built by though okay and they had a pretty fancy office in their video. With a lot of fancy stuff. Well, built on Android, comma, by the creator uh, of Jambox. Come Does on. Doesn't mean built by Jambox. You, st you stick Clive Barker's name on a horror movie doesn't mean he actually did anything. You're right. Well, I'm going to get back to you in just a second. So we'll continue this conversation because <laughs> I am Googling like a mother right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's and also too like, you know, you're getting all these reports from folks who have gotten their Ouya and, you know, granted, it's. You don't know what you're going to get when you back something on Kickstarter, and that's part of it, and that's part of Kickstarter. But, you know, there's this whole slick marketing campaign, and there's all the, these big box stores and stuff, and, and there's the comments of the fact that the OUYA, that the Kickstarters are, are the, the people who funded it on Kickstarter are actually going to get a less quality version of the OUYA um, because, like, the faceplate of the controller is falling off and, like, all this kind of stuff, um, whereas the big box uh, folks are going to be getting uh, slightly better and more tested and uh, a better uh, prototype, not prototype, but a better model of the controller and et cetera, just because, you know, they wouldn't, the big box stores wouldn't stand for that shit. The thing so, that sucks is that these, these if if that was spaced out six months to a year, be like, well, that's understandable. But the, the thing is they're happening on top of each other and that's where things yes. get dicey. And it's easy to be like, well, they had no idea what they were getting into. And it's pretty fucking obvious they didn't have any idea what they were getting into. Uh, but then you just got to throw up your hands and be like, I mean, I, how the fuck am I supposed to feel about this? I guess is maybe what most people are experiencing. Well, yeah. what I think is going to be interesting is, is how this, you know, affects the future of Kickstarter. And I think it's kind of this, you know, elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about, but you know, as these, these things like, Ouya keep happening. I mean, how, how is that going to affect people's faith in the platform? So, mm -hmm. so Helms woman, Julie Ehrman, who's the founder and CEO at Ouya, the one who's in the video and all that, mm -hmm. the one with the sweet eighties haircut. Mm -hmm. Okay. She's pretty, she's, she's pretty intense in that video. Most recently, she was VP and GM of digital distribution, IGN. But uh, she was also a uh, vice president of business development um, in charge of monetization and media content. So basically, she is looking at it from a distribution standpoint, not from production. So she's right. always worked in, in, in developing the business, the software side and monetization. So, and also she was a, <laughs> oh, I can't even say this without laughing. She was an investment banking analyst. 
So we All made right. so we made an investment in somebody who we basically played in the yard with the big dogs and lost because she made, you know, she spent her time convincing people it was a good idea to spend their money, whether it was or not. Mm. So there you go. I don't yeah. know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so quick to damn anybody over something like that. Well, I'd like but. to meet her and ask her in person, Julie, what made you guys think you could do this and then also open up pre-orders and then do that and then also go into stores when you couldn't even fulfill your obligation to the people who gave you the money in the first place? It's a fair question. I mean, it's like taking investors. Okay, so if we were using a straight investor, right? Cap, you want to open up a lemonade stand. As opposed stand. to a gay investor. Right. <laughs> or Colin. You know, I'm going to talk to you, Colin. You're your you're lemonade stand, right? Uh-huh. You need 50 bucks for some lemons and some sugar. Sure. I go, Colin, well, here's some 50 bucks. Very expensive lemons and sugar. Here's 50 bucks, right? I want lemonade the rest of my life. I'm going to invest in you. You go, that sounds Bitch like a great idea. a lot of fucking lemonade. Right? Yeah, that's right. Life so, hands you lemons, man. Or John Laval. So now you got your lemonade stand. Now you're going to go to Cap and go, hey, Cap, I will give you 800 gallons of lemonade, right? If you give me $5. Well, that's weird, right? That's so, a pretty good deal, man. Hold on a second now. I'm John. I'm going to flip that. Right? I'm, I'm coming back and I'm going, I'm going, <laughs> hey man, where's that lemonade you promised me? Because you promised me unlimited lemonade the rest of my life because I started you out. And you went, oh, I can't give it to you because Cat Blackard needed 500 gallons of lemonade. Someone sniffing around trying to take my lemons? Yeah, that's what I'm talking Now we're fighting. You a lemon whore? Can you imagine if all of us Ouya backers went to the store and just started fights with <laughs> <laughs> people who show up on release day? If we yeah, didn't have awesome. our our units, I got a unit. Uh, you want to see it? Oh yeah! yeah. So I also got eight hundred gallons of lemonade. Like, nah, this is it. it you, you you write you, you write Julie an email. I'd be like, listen, I got mine. I picked it up from the Best Buy. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need to send it. I know you sent me a tracking a tracking number and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But I you know I went to the tracking number and honestly, it's not actually saying that it's doing anything. So, Ditto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mine too. Yeah. I, I, I just picked it up from Best Buy. Thanks. <laughs> Don't worry, Julie. Yeah, thanks, I got mine used on eBay yeah. <laughs> for $6. Well, this episode's coming out after our time at E3, where Ouya will have some of a presence there. And uh, maybe maybe you'll have some words with Julie. And, uh, oh, and we'll it. see. Uh, we may, we may need to do a follow-up. Idea. I don't know. but um, You know what? We should corner her at a party, real awkward and unprofessional-like, and show her our printout of our email. Yeah. When it's two weeks later, because it's it would actually be like we should be getting them while we're in L.A. Probably according to when, that, like when oh, instead we should just pick them up from the Ouya tent. <laughs> you know what? We'll just walk up to their demo where it's like on the little pedestal. Take it be like this is mine. I'm fucking taking this and then just walk out. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, wait, I need, wait, hold on. Get, let me wait. Can you guys hand me that little etching, etching machine? Yeah, OK, <laughs> great. Thank you very much. All right. Extra controller. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. See you. All right. Peace out. <laughs> I'm you doing know what? It, that's shipping you can keep it it's on me <laughs> yeah and that's that's just the thing with this kickstarter stuff is it, it's just you don't know what you're getting and it's 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 becoming a more of a uh, the bigger big idea folks are becoming and the bigger corporations and big big folks are just becoming more interested in this crown crowdfunding it's you know it's the commercialization of kickstarter yeah is what essentially we have seen well here's and a, it's not great it's Here, not great. Here's an example from a smaller level. Uh, there was a comic book I backed, uh, Terminus, which was by somebody who's local here, somebody I met face to face. Who's been on Megacon. the show in the past, in fact. Right. I saw him face to face at Megacon. They show me some drawings. I said, they're actually selling some copies, but I'm like, hey, is mine coming? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we ran into some money problems or whatever. 
Uh, it turned out we needed more money, but it's coming or, you know, it's slow or whatever. I'm like, okay, great. Fast forward to like a year later, maybe more. Uh, I'm at a well, con- Megacon, Megacon, right? So. so it's been a year. Uh, fast forward to I'm at the uh, map event at a, at a comic shop. At a comic shop, and map there is is map foundation, foundation, yeah, right. Uh, Findermap that is findermap.org. And there I am, face to fucking face with a motherfucking copy of Terminus, right there on the fucking shelf. I'm gonna let Did that sink in. Come on, man, pull the Ouya. I was yeah. going to do it. But because uh, and 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 well, see, I wasn't there. A friend of mine was there who happened to be Batman. Uh-huh. I don't want to give away my secret identity. And uh, there I am. Uh, I face with the choice if I can wipe my ass with it or I can be a gentleman and walk away and send this gentleman an email. Afraid that I'm going to have to go back now after this conversation. and I'm just going to fucking take it. And when Eric or Oral are like, what are you doing with that? I'm going to go. This is fucking mine. And I'm going to keep walking. That's what I'm going to do now. <laughs> I think that sounds good. I'm going to fucking do it. And by the way, if that dude's listening, give me my fucking copy. Give me all my perks. Okay, well, here, here's something I, I want you to know, because I'd be a, a dirty rat if I didn't come clean about this. Oh, God, here we go. I ran a Kickstarter pretty early on into its infancy. Uh, it was to fund some motion, some motion graphics on a music video that I helped direct. I got the funding for it, and I have sent no perks whatsoever. Oh, wait a it, second. It's, it's for a huge, huge conglomeration of reasons, but I haven't done it. Okay. I, I feel bad but about it, and did, I think about it all the time. Have you said anything to these people, though? I've said nothing. Whoa. Uh, and some of those people might be people listening to the show. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we have in in our possession here one of the one of the offenders. Yeah. Of the uh, of the Kickstarter screw well, job. And here's here's why it didn't. Uh, okay. It didn't. It didn't take. Go ahead. Because I and then was, we're gonna wait, wait, wait. And then we're gonna say innocent or guilty. Okay. Sure. Fine. Okay. I, I'm we have fine three. We have three judges. We have three jury. And then we're either gonna condemn you. Uh huh. And then you're gonna have to do something embarrassing to make up for it for your backers. Yeah. Or uh, you can walk away free man. I wanted to be able to release this video in HD at a high quality. The people who were working on the motion graphics for me at a discounted rate, they were in Great Britain, so I had very little control over what was happening. When I got it back, when the money had been spent, it wasn't to the caliber that I wanted it to be at, and I thought that there was a chance in hell that I could hold out to get what I wanted. Time passed, and it didn't happen. I have, I have this video up, up on Vimeo, and I'll, I'll link to where you can see it. It's all right. It didn't live up to my expectations. I thought I could deliver, so I held out for a while. It's my own fault for not communicating. The uh, In fact, I actually have an apology perk that everyone's going to get. Anybody who listens to this show has a good idea of uh, how little time I have on my hands to uh, <laughs> to do more or less anything. Did you know this before you started the project? Did you know that you would have very little time? No, I had no idea. Okay. Nerdy Show is in its infancy. Okay, so the, so we're talking pre 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 busy cap. Yeah, this it is wasn't not the. You're it, only stretched in three it, directions, it, not a hundred. It wasn't quite Nerdy Show wasn't quite a lifestyle at the time. Okay, basically it's it's complicated. It's always you can the the, the guys who did Terminus like they're they're nice guys, but the fact is the book is out. The product, yeah, it's like, it's the product on the is there. Shelf. I'm it's looking at it. Like it's you have absolutely no excuse to not have that. Right. Where I mean, I'm in a slightly different situation, but I'm not going to make excuses for myself. Right. But even even if years later, you know, uh, everybody gets way more than they invested in, and I don't, and no one's no one's complained or talked to me or said said anything about it. Like, so they haven't put in the effort. No to one's hunt you no one's lit a, no one's lit a fire under my ass, and I'm grateful for it because not, not that they should have. Not I mean, not that they should have had to, but well, it's a right obviously, to, but, I, obvi- but obviously, you haven't disturbed anybody so much. Yeah. And and well, to be fair, I think if it's been in the infancy of Kickstarter, it's probably been forgotten. Although now you might get that fire lit under your ass since you brought yeah, it Yeah, but that's okay. That's the risk he's taking yeah. being here in Kickstarter court. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I court had... Court starter. I, I, I would be 
I would not would I not be a douchebag if I didn't bring it up in this discussion? I, I, then uh, I would have something to hide. You might be I more of a douchebag now. Like it was like you did something traumatizing to a child at some point, and now you're going up to them as an adult where they've already gotten over it and shown them, you know, like a play by play of what you did. It, yeah. <laughs> so. Good word. Well, I mean, like, you know, it's also the matter of not speaking about cap, but speaking about, you know, some other things that I've backed, like, you know, you get the money, right? You got you've got you've gotten all this money. Like, great. You went all you did all the work. Your Kickstarter funded. Great. Now I've got all this fucking money. Awesome. And now I don't got to do any of the work anymore. I got all the money. I don't have to work for it anymore. It's in my bank account. And now all I got to do is like, you know, quote unquote, finish my project. So the impetus for the meeting the deadlines and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't exist anymore because you've already been paid. Like right. it's not it's not a matter of like, oh, shit, I got to get this done or else I'm not going to get paid. You've been paid and it's only halfway done, you know, so the the, the idea of, you know, pushing to get the deadline out, it, it's not there because you've already been fucking paid. And that's the idea that Kickstarter is, is that. You are getting money to finish a project. You're giving money to finish a project. Right. You know, so like, you know, you don't have to hustle anymore. You, you've made it. You got it. You know, so you don't have to. No matter how you know, bad, at least you could finish it. Yeah. You don't have to finish the book or, right. you know, put out the podcasts, you know? Yeah. Here, I mean, the thing is, like, here's what I was supposed to get in this Terminus thing, not to go back to it and harp on it. But I, I think that for people that don't know a lot about Kickstarter, we're not talking about we need uh, a life-sized uh, statue made in Rice Krispie Treats, you know, of, of, you know, Bill Clinton. You know, we're not talking about anything crazy. We're not talking about building the pyramids here. This is what I was supposed to get a poster, a t-shirt, and a printed and signed copy of the issue number one, and then a PDF. But I haven't even gotten a PDF, by the way. And I literally emailed like a year ago. So again, you know, not to call anybody specific, but that's pretty much what it well, was may, maybe what kickstarter needs is a rating system like ebay has where oh, someone yeah. it, it would disable someone from being able to be a repeat offender oh that would be amazing yeah. but i will be interested in seeing the first ever kickstarter class action lawsuit oh, shit. <laughs> i mean that would well, be I mean, I, what i wonder is at what point does this you know rooting for the little guy or the feeling that you're doing good or helping somebody out wear off when there's so many failed kickstarters and you've been burned so many times yeah it's awful so going back to i mean Going back to Cap, how do you how do you plead? Uh, totally 100% guilty. Oh, crap. I mean, I, I got obviously I've got reasons and I got better reasons than some people do, but that <laughs> but doesn't make it OK. But, but let me ask you this on the charges. But I do have a battle plan on so the charges that. on the charges being completely negligible, though. Right. Like, I mean, you were like, ah, fuck it. it doesn't matter. How do you plead? Guilty. Oh, shit. I, I, have, I had very low communication <laughs> with everybody. No, I, I mean, like, the thing is, I feel bad about it. I really do. I, I do think about it frequently. I, I should have. Kickstarter was so early on. Right. I didn't really know the rhythms and about like the whole, you know, garnering like, you know, frequent updates and everything. I never got in the habit, never followed it up. And by the time it was like that people really deserved to hear something, right. uh, it was long past when it made sense for me to even do it. The thing is that, you know, I've got I, I'm prepared to to you know, to, to fulfill this in some capacity, you know, at some point, but so you're going to make good on it. Like you haven't walked away from it in my heart. I am. And I have the means to do it, but I, it's not, you know, it's time, right? Right. It's not, it's time. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you should be punished is another question though. If anybody comes sniffing around, I'll give them what they need. You know, Colin Peterson, if you think you should be punished, go ahead and say guilty, not punished. Go ahead and say not guilty. Go ahead. Colin Peterson. I can't, I don't know if I could ever say the cap is guilty. So you're going to say not guilty. 
Not not guilty. Okay. I, I am not. I, although I am completely one hundred percent a uh, biased uh, observer. Sure, of course. We He's all. He's not are. allowed in the jury. Yeah, to be fair, I think I think we all are. I don't know. That this okay. Is very, well, I'm gonna go ahead and we, say we guilty. Would all be disqualified from being jury. <laughs> cap, cap, cap is Cap is my effigy for all other people who haven't given me my Kickstarter rewards. Yeah. And you may beat me up in the parking lot. But in all seriousness, though, Cap, I think that we can all say that you've done enough work for humanity. Oh, thank you. Since then, <laughs> serve my time. So what we're gonna say is is uh, you get time served. Yeah. So time you're sentenced. You're friend. sentenced to ten years. But you get time served. So. No, he, his his the time that he's serving is is working on nerdy show. That's what, <laughs> what it is, man. Yeah, and I would be interested. Nobody to, knows the trouble as I see. <laughs> but you've done a lot. I mean, it's 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 pretty cool. And and see, it's good that you came out and said it though. Like you you could have ignored this entire episode. Well, that's not the kind of person I am. Yeah, that's true. You put it all out there, like when you wear spandex. Always, <laughs> always all out there. Oh man, but you're not Ouya. You know, you don't have millions of dollars. No, I mean, it's true, right? You yeah. underestimated the project. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. Time and money and resources. Whereas Ouya has, you know, like $10 million and took pre-orders. So we don't even know what they have in pre-orders, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know what they have in other investments and already resources they already have available to them. And we ain't seen shit. As of this episode's release, we've already covered E3 and we no doubt have a slew of crazy oh, stories true. to tell. So um, if you want to check out what um, all that stuff that happened and all those podcasts we release and all the videos and everything, just go to nerdyshow.com slash E3 2013. God, I remember when it was fucking E3 2011. <laughs> Back in the day. Two years ago, dude. It's not that far. Um, it doesn't feel like two years ago. <laughs> I, I've covered wars. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. <laughs> Uh, so, so in this episode, we've painted a pretty wide swath of the, the, the beast that is Kickstarter and what it, what it is, what it could be, both bleak and positive futures. Uh, where it will go, we don't know. You know, someday maybe you'll see a nerdy show related Kickstarter, but uh, <laughs> at least you can know that we've all got a, where, where we all stand on this. <laughs> yeah, we'll make as good on our reward perks as we have made good on all of the uh, microsodes and you know other other things we've done over the months suffice to, it to know. say that we won't uh we won't ever we know we know how to get in over our heads we're really 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 good at that we're not we wouldn't dare start a kickstarter unless we, we knew do, we weren't going to be in over our heads we should do a kickstarter we're slowly chipping away we are chipping away we're we're, we're doing the, good well, i think i think that lays the groundwork for a successful kickstarter it does exactly yeah. you know because, what shit you can't do so well i just have one final thought for all you Kickstarter folks out there who have participated or thinking about participating in Kickstarter, if you're an artist and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do a Kickstarter for my little project and stuff like that, that is great. But here's the thing. Like, don't get mad at your friends if they don't back you. And also, don't, like, do a Kickstarter every other month because, like, you have a new idea and you're, like, hitting up your friends and then you get mad at them because you, you don't back them, like, for each and every idea that you've come up with on Kickstarter. I'm just, that's just my little food for thought. I very seldom back my friends, depending on circumstance. For example, I wanted a copy of Normal Bias on vinyl, so I backed Mark's Normal Bias vinyl Indiegogo. I didn't back popular music because I was doing the art for it, and I thought that might be a conflict of interest. If it was not funded, then I certainly would have (laughs) chipped in towards the end. It would have been Um, like you paid to make the art. That's why I stopped supporting Nerdy Show. Yeah, well, you got too involved. Now look (laughs) at you. No, barefoot it's, and pregnant oh it's awful it's the worst 
stay stay an honorary producer that way you get all the credit <laughs> and you don't have to worry about anything <laughs> so thanks so much for listening bye i'm cap i'm john lavelle bye i'm jessica and bye i'm colin taking us out kickstarter funded song here we got prom night by anna managuchi from their endless fantasy kickstarter this track features bianca raquel on vocals cap yes Will you go to prom with me oh colin i thought you'd never ask
Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is made possible by A Comic Shop, Nerdapalooza, and the generous support of listeners like you. The genital support. Oh, come on now. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on the iTunes, or making a contribution in our monthly support drive. I've got no money. Well, chill out, man. Any size contribution gets you Nerdy Show audio and images, like even a buck, and it lets you participate in our monthly support drives. Just go to nerdyshow.com and click the support page to chip in. It's easy. Wait outside 7-Eleven long enough, I'll get you a dollar. Uh, hey, that's, you know, whatever works. quarters, but that's all they're going <laughs> to give me for the bus. <laughs> well, look, for more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programming, community forums, videos, articles, and more, you should head over to nerdyshow.com. And you can subscribe to all Nerdy Show Network podcasts via the iTunes store. For the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. Okay. Is anybody actually still going to do the Kickstarter after listening yeah. to that? Yeah, really? Yeah. All good. <laughs> it is worth it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.